Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. And Hooray. today, Pete, what are we talking about? Hey, what, 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 what are we talking about? We're talking about HMS Warspite in the Second World War. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's an exciting topic. Uh, lots of uh, lots of well, just. General mayhem uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, Norway, all sorts of places. Speaking you, of general mayhem, have you uh, you've been to the lavatory, haven't you? You're, I have. You're quite I've, comfortable now. I, I am comfortable. I, I've seen to everything. Have you? Uh, has Fred taken you for your walk? Fred's taken me for my walk, and we're all rearing and ready to go. Right, let's get going. So, where did we leave Warspite? Because this where? is our second one, isn't it? Yeah, we did one on uh, HMS Warspite in World War One, or the Great War, as uh, we normally call it. Uh, we. We'd, uh, we left her sort of. She was battered, but uh, still afloat, <laughs> just about after the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Um, the repairs. She went underwent a series of repairs, and she was back with the Fifth Battle Squadron uh, by July 1916. So she was only out for a couple of months, um, but then was probably <laughs> probably in a collision with HMS Valiant at Scapa Flow on the 24th of August, which brought her out of action for another couple of months. Well, she well, a lucky, lucky ship. ship yeah. <laughs> lucky war spot, they used to call her. <laughs> uh, now, we ought to point out who she, the, the, the war spot was one of the super dreadnoughts of the Queen Elizabeth class. Uh, and they were. Now, can you remember any other ones, Gary? I've written them down to remember them, but uh, I, that was my job. But I just wonder whether you can remember Well, the Valiant, for one, that she managed to crash into. Yes, that's one. And three others. Barham, 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 Barham. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth, I'm surprised you didn't get that one. And the uh, Malaya, which was paid for by the Federated States of Malaya, I think. And when were they laid down, Pete? They were laid down, uh, r- roughly speaking, in 1914. For their, their first appearance was in fifteen. Yeah. And the eight 15-inch guns, uh, they're the most up-to-date engines of the time, fantastic, for, uh, proper armour protection, which, of course, is why the war spite survived Jutland when she was pounded by most of the German fleet. There's a thundering below. <laughs> I can hear a boom, bang, a bang, boom, bang, a bang, boom, bang. Yeah. So what what did they do for the rest of the war, Pete? Because 1916 was quite active, but what about 1917? Nah, not much going on, really. Uh, The same for the rest of the Grand Fleet. Nothing much happens. uh, And, and, uh, yeah, not much happened, and it it happened slowly for for the lads on the ships, uh, for the most part. Um, then, uh, 7th of February 1918, uh, by this time the war spots, the flagship of the 5th Battle Squadron, uh, had another lucky incident. What was that, Gary? <laughs> well, uh, the lucky ship had a severe fire in the port engine room, Pete. So, <laughs> more damage. <laughs> more damage and another visit to the dockyards. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Those dockyard Johnnies must be tired of seeing the war spite. Uh then the war spite, it's back back in time for the surrender of the German high seas fleet when they sail into the Firth of Forth. Magnificent. There's photographs of it. It's really a great moment in naval history, uh, the surrender, formal surrender of the fleet on the 21st of November 1918. Remember that because we're, in a way that we come back to that because uh, there's something similar happens in the Second World War. Now, what happens after the war? Well, uh, War Spite and her sister ships, they're, they're the second battle squadron now. Uh, in, they're in the Atlantic fleet from 1919 to 1924. Lots of cruises to Gibraltar, annual exercises in the Mediterranean. Terrible life. Terrible life. <laughs> um, 
But then there's a defence cut. So what, what is it that really impacts on the Royal Navy at this time? What, what is it that, that, that just makes a hell of a difference? Well, there's the, uh, the Washington Conference Agreement of 1921, Pete, which limits the relative sizes of navies and also the size of new battleships. So, in effect, the Royal Navy's cut to ribbons, but the Queen Elizabeth class is retained. Now, uh, part of what go, goes on, they, they, they retain them, but the, the war spite undergoes a major refit, which takes two years. When I say refit, it's almost a rebuilding. Uh, they put a, an, why do you think they put an anti-torpedo bulge on uh, the sides? Uh, yeah. To stop uh, torpedoes yes. sinking them. Yes, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this uh, is 1924-26, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, her two funnels, uh, her beautiful shape is to some extent ruined. It's, she was a beautiful-looking ship. Two funnels linked into one. Uh, you've only got one funnel, haven't you? I have. Uh, and a uh, remodelled bridge structure. I've got uh, one of them as well. <laughs> hell of a bridge. Uh, and anti-aircraft pom-pom guns are, are put on. Why, why, why anti-aircraft pom-pom guns? What's becoming more of a threat as, as, uh, as the years pass by? Submarines. Aircraft. <laughs> aircraft no, submarines. really. Aircraft submarines. <laughs> now, this means a displacement. Uh, rises, doesn't it, Pete? To 31,000 tonnes. So as a result, presumably, uh, it affects her speed. It does. It does. It does. Um, and uh, she goes down to about 22, 23 knots. Still relatively fast. About 24 knots before, 20, 23 to 24 before. There's always some doubts about, uh, about, about that. Now, refit completed. She goes on to uh, serve uh, intermittently. She's flagship of the Mediterranean fleet. Um, based in based in Malta from 1926, then she joins the Atlantic fleet in 1930, and then uh, there's a bit more exciting, which is caught up in the Invergord lucky old war spite, caught up in the Invergord mutiny, and uh, this reminded me. In fact, I went and bought it on the eBay. Uh, a local East Finchley lad, he's about 80 now, Alan Herrera, wrote a book on the Invergordon, and I, that was one of the first things I ever catalogued at the War Museum with the series of interviews he gave to the War Museum. Uh, and th- th- that was quite a trip to the past, seeing all that, remembering. It's not all about you, Pete. Is it not? <laughs> and anyway, uh, March 1933, another collision. <laughs> all spite, the dodgem, I would call it. <laughs> she doesn't seem to go. I wonder if Leslie Phillips had some, you know, the left hand down in the Navy, like left hand down a bit. <laughs> Um, this time with a Romanian steamer. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's better than a green streamer. <laughs> Probably didn't see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more exercises, more tours, various countries, showing the flag, visits to British, uh, obscure British ports to show the flags in primitive places like uh, Glasgow and, you know, Edinburgh places, you know, beyond the ken of mortal man. Um, and then uh, war clouds. Uh, so another modernisation, um, because uh, uh, so, so this is this is a big one. This is from 19th, December thirty-three into thirty-seven. That's uh, how many years is that, Gary? That's four years. Now she's gutted the midships, Pete, and both underwater and deck protection are improved against the uh, battleship's main enemies, which by this time are developing to be mines, torpedoes, and bombs. Let, let's so then uh, bat- other battleships' guns. Yeah. Yeah. Now more anti-aircraft guns are fitted, um, and they could. She could also now carry a couple of aircraft. She's not an aircraft carrier, um, but uh, just a couple of small aircraft. She's got a hangar and a couple of seaplanes or float planes or whatever you call them, yeah. That, that, uh. Now, the guns are modified as well. Why, why, well, God, the guns are good anyway, 15-inch bangy things, but what, what do they do? Yeah, but they, they uh, modify it to allow greater elevation so that that gives an improved range of about 32,000 yards. Now, what's That's that in miles, way. Pete? Well, uh, that is about 24 miles. Uh, 18 miles, Pete. Now... Now, to reduce the weight to compensate, more modern high-pressure boilers and turbines are also fitted. Ah, so they'd be lighter but provide the same engine power. Yeah. A lot lighter, wouldn't they? And a new lighter bridge structure and the removal of four six-inch guns. Those are the ones on the side. And the torpedo tubes. All right, they're not necessary. Uh, Now, the displacement goes up to 32,000. That's another 1,000. 
Uh, so she's not quite such a good sailor. She's got what uh, you, you you might want to explain it, what a low freeboard is, but I, th I think it means it's nearly sinking. And impaired below deck ventilation, but she could still just about make 24 knots now because the, the, all the changes and everything were sort of counterbalancing each other. Um, uh, now, there's a problem though. Uh, now this, this, you'll be surprised to hear this. Guess what goes wrong or what starts to become a problem from then to the end of her time? Well, despite it being a, a four-year programme, the dockyard uh, programme's actually been rushed. And, Towards the back end of it, And yeah. the Warspite has uh, recurrent steering problems. <laughs> now, especially in top speed manoeuvring, and uh, in fact, this caused a bit of a delay in acceptance. Now, the, this new Warspite, and when I say new Warspite, it is almost a new ship. It's made flagship of the Mediterranean fleet based at Malta in 1938. Loads of working up exercises and the gunnery, the new gun provision they're still deadly accurate they've always been accurate they're deadly accurate and that will be a feature of the war spikes career um, uh, the war comes september 1939 for the british and it's quite quiet in the, isn't it the opening months in the mediterranean remember the italians aren't in the war and i can't think of any german ports on the mediterranean not not offhand <laughs> um and uh uh, who's the uh, who's the the the, the Warspite's a flagship of the Mediterranean fleet? So who's the, the admiral? Because he's going to feature a lot in this, isn't he? Yeah, it's Vice Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham, who's based initially at Alexandria. Oh, well, that's in Egypt. Yeah. Now the Royal Navy had twelve battleships at that time, of which ten were the Queen Elizabeth or R class. That's the Royal Sovereign. Uh, Rep Oh, God, I can't remember the names of the other ones. The, the Royal Sovereign class. Yeah, which are, are, are great warships, aren't they? Yeah, Ramillies and things now, like that. Probably. the only <laughs> modern battleships were the Rodney and the Nelson. That's which... what could confuse me. That also begins with R. That's not... <laughs> now, they date back to the early 1920s. Well, that's interesting because the Warspite's been rebuilt since then. So, in some ways, the Warspite's more modern, perhaps, perhaps not. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, she had the, the, the range and speed of any of the battleships there at the time. Um, there were less German ships, for example, but they were on the whole more modern. This is the Bismarck and Tirpitz. That are I don't know where they've been launched then, but they're, they're on the horizon. Uh, well, you've got the German pocket battleships, haven't you, such as the Graf Spey and uh, the battlecruisers like the Scharnhurst and the Neisenau. I never know how to say that. That's right. Because of Ganesha. Uh, Ganesha, Ganesh. Uh, that, uh, the, and the pocket things like pocket battleships are, are their means of avoiding the Washington Treaty, aren't they? That, that's what's going on there. Um, the, now those ships, all three of them, the Grass Bay, Sharnos, Ganesh, they can't be caught by British battleships, and the only ones that really bothered them were the, the faster British battlecruisers. And and you'll have heard of one of them, uh, Gary. Can you name one? British well, certainly the Hood uh, was uh, was one. I think. Uh, the Renown and, and the Repulse. The repulse. That's yeah. it. Ooh, wow. Your memory's picking up. It's really brilliant. Now, October 39, Warspite's withdrawn from the Mediterranean and goes on convoy escort duties in the Atlantic, based at Greenock, which I never knew where it was. It's, but near it's Glasgow. Glasgow. Yeah, yeah, it's near it's, Glasgow. It, uh, it's, is it Glasgow's port? I think it is. I think it is, yeah. yeah. And and after and after the Nelson damaged by a mine, not the Warspite, but there's <laughs> something going wrong. Uh, She's probably steered towards it and missed. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, she had a period as flagship of the home fleet. This is so the Warspite is a very important ship at this time. Um, now, uh, phony war ends on the 9th of April 1940. Uh, the Germans invade Norway and they attack the six main ports, of which the most northern is Narvik. And that's assault, that's attacked, assaulted by a small army group uh, with 10 large five inch gun destroyers. They're better than our destroyers, aren't they? And elements of the home fleet are sent to intercept them, including the war spite. Now, that was just about, was just about to be returned to the Mediterranean fleet, but it's sent off on this mission. And there's two battles of Narvik, aren't there? Uh, take me through the first battle of Narvik. So there's the, t the 10 uh, German destroyers. They're, they're in the field. What happens to them on the 10th of April? Well, on the 10th of April, they're attacked by five smaller British H-class destroyers which have got 4.7-inch guns. Now, at first, they took the Germans by surprise and they sank a couple of destroyers. But as more Germans emerged, uh, the outnumbered British lost one and suffered uh, severe damage. Now, a bit of a draw, really, isn't it? Yeah, in essence, it's a draw as the Germans 
fail to press home their numerical advantage. Ooh. Now, the second Battle of Narvik is uh, three days later. I've just worked that out in my head. Yes, that's uh, the 13th of April. Yes, yeah. unlucky for some, Gary. Uh, and this is, we've got some quotes about this. We're going to go into it because this is quite a battle, isn't it? The British return, but this time they've got the war spite and nine destroyers. And you've got a picture of the scene, Gary. Gary, I want to set the picture, a picture in your mind. Freezing bloody cold, cloudy night. It's a cloudy night. Flurries of snow, the decks of the warships covered in ice and visibility down to about 10 miles. Oh. Sounds like May 2021. <laughs> it does sound like it, yeah. Um, and at five o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, Warspite starts a journey up the uh, Narvik fields. Uh, they've got three destroyers in front uh, and uh, and uh, uh, they've got minesweeping gear. Now, wh- where are the other six, Gary? Well, the other six are stationed, uh, three on either side. Um but it's still a real gamble. Why? Pete. Why is it a gamble? Well, you've not only got German destroyers, but what about the U-boat threat? So a double, a double, um, and then there's the mines, of course. So it's a double mine threat and, yeah, a double torpedo threat and mines. Yeah, yeah now you're going to be Lieutenant Patrick Hoare of HMS Warspite. The captain accordingly addressed the ship's company on the plan and also the attendant dangers that would ensue on the following day, which started with a special Holy Communion at 8am, attended by some 300, the average of a Sunday being about 20. (laughs) How often was one to see in the future celestial insurance policies being taken out before impending danger? Celestial prayers in celestial celestial insurance policy. I like that. That's a nice one. Um, now there's a, the war spite is a deadly play, a deadly uh, warship, and and the aircraft carried aboard it seems to be pretty deadly as well. And and they have a swordfish float plane, and this is com- commanded by Lieutenant Commander W L M Brown, uh, and it's launched from the war spite to scout ahead. And what a flight it was! What a fight it was! What a what a what an excitement! They they, they firstly they warned the war spire of hidden destroyers on the flanks. In you know because a, a field has lots of sidey bits. Other fields, fields of fields of fields of fields. And then this aircraft sl- sights a, a U-boat. Uh, you know, in one of the side fields, and it's waiting. It's going to launch its torpedoes at the war spire. Well. The pilot left an account because although uh, Brown was the commander, the pilot was Petty Officer Airman Frederick Rice. And he says this. What does he say, Gary? The swordfish carried an assorted bomb load, 250-pound high-explosive bombs, 200-pound anti-submarine bombs and 840-pound anti-personnel bombs. U-64 was seen on the surface at the top of Hardingsford. I selected the two anti-submarine bombs and put the swordfish in a dive and released the bombs at 200 feet. I couldn't see the bombs fall as we pulled out, but Pacey saw the starboard bomb fall close alongside and the port one hit just abaft the conning tower. Abaft! Now, abaft means behind, Pete. Avast behind. The U-boat was already sinking when I could see her again. Now, that's uh, uh, Pacey, by the way, was the other member of the crew. He'd be the wireless operator, I presume. Uh, that, uh, that's quite a thing, isn't it? Uh, the War Spites uh, float plane was the first, sunk the first U-boat uh, of the war, sunk by an, a, a naval aircraft. It's quite something. And she then, the, the swordfish, continues its recce and sends back vital information, you know, where, they, where exactly those bloody German destroyers are, by wireless. Now, that actually points to the importance of the refit, Pete, because without that refit, she wouldn't have had that that plane. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. There there you go. Um, Then there's another scare. Uh, There's a store, another U-boat. The warship is sort of a mixture of luck, isn't it? Uh, This this stalking U-boat, it's a submerged rock. And bobs to the surface, and by the time uh, by the time they've got themselves sorted out, they've lost the chance. The warship and the so warships, uh, war spite's still a lucky ship. Oh, lucky, lucky war spite. Lucky war spite. Um, then they go up the uh, field, and there's a series of running encounters with the German destroyers as they emerge from the various side fields and inlets. It's it's very exciting, and the the the, the defending destroyers, the the nine of them, are, are, are firing at them, and the wall spot enthusiastically joins in. Um, 
Well, as the 15-inch guns blaze out, there's something important about this. What's that? Well, it's the first time that her main armaments fired in anger since the Battle of Jutland, Pete, in 1916. A long time, it? it is a long time. Now, here's a quote from Petty Officer Daniel Reardon of HMS Warspite, and you're going to be Daniel Reardon on this occasion, Pete. What does he say? A terror officer tells me out and loud. We, we, we hear the, office, uh, the order re- uh, repeated to the men down below. The cages come up with a thud, and out, out go the rammers. Suddenly comes the order, salvos, and the right-hand gun comes to the ready. Then, enemy in sight, and the sight setters chant out the ranges. It is like a practice shoot. Our guns are nearly horizontal, so the range must be short. Then the ding-ding of the fire gong. The right gun moves a little, comes steady, and there's a woof, which rocks the turret. The left gun is now at the ready and fires while the right gun is reloading. The turret fills with smoke, like London on a November 9th. The turret officer calls out, Tell the crew we have hit a destroyer and she's burning nicely. Good work, boys. Keep it going. Steady firing now. Then the trainer reports. Blimey, another one has got it. Wow. Quite exciting, isn't it? How, how much... How, to, to, let's just give them an idea. How, how much does the one shell weigh? Well, it's approximately one tonne. So be, can you imagine a destroyer with its thin little sides being smashed by one of these? Well, there's a phrase, isn't there? It would have gone through a destroyer like a hot, hot knife, like a hot knife through butter. I mean, that's rather apt. Yes, and you're going to be able seaman H. Banks. We couldn't miss at that range. Imagine if you can, four 15-inch shells, each weighing a tonne, packed with high explosive, hitting a thin-skinned destroyer. Now, when the uh, when the firing stops, and it doesn't last long, obviously it doesn't last long with one-ton shells smashing at the destroyers, the gun crews are allowed to come up on top of the uh, turrets. And this is Petty Officer Daniel Reardon again. There is a sight, burning and sinking enemy ships all around us, and our own destroyers searching into every little corner that might hide something. I seem to have gone from Australian yeah, to Cornish. Australian to Cornish. I was going to comment on the accent. I was, I was going for Cockney, but it, it, I forgot. You what, missed. I forgot what Cockney sound like. Me. <laughs> oh yeah. Ish. Right. Uh, so what have they done? What have they achieved, Gary? At the end of the day. Well, in all, they'd sunk uh, eight destroyers, one U-boat, and uh, they'd also damaged shore batteries and installations. Now, there was a cost. There was a cost. Wasn't it, it was at the expense of three damaged destroyers now it's a thought that if a landing force had been with them in, in other words um, you know behind them that they 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 they, 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 they could have been captured but they, there's no point in risking they can't leave the war spot there because because why not well because you as you mentioned previously that she would be susceptible to air and submarine attack yeah, that's it. Uh, so for early on the 14th of April, so the, the, the war spike withdraws. Uh, they come back and they carry out a shore bombardment on the 24th of April. But the, the Norwegian campaign, we're going to have to leave it because it's doomed. Uh, the Germans uh, just have us for breakfast. Warspite goes back, period in home waters, and then finally gets sent back to the Mediterranean, where it becomes the flagship again of Admiral uh, Cunningham, uh, who's uh, a, a vigorous uh, uh, admiral. Vigorous. <laughs> now, this is to face the new enemy, which at this point is now the Italians. They've joined the war in, in what was it, uh, June 1940? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now, there are other battleships out there, the Malaya, the Royal Sovereign, and the uh, Ramillies. And uh, there's an aircraft carrier, Pete, out there, the Eagle, and uh, the usual screens of cruisers and destroyers. But, you know, they're facing a, a, a more modern or recently modernised Italian fleet. Yeah, they've got a couple of cracking new ships, in it, but also they've modernised their, their, their First World War pre-dreadnoughts. Uh, Warspite's next big adventure takes place on the 7th of July. Uh, Cunningham uh, went to cover two convoys travelling from Malta to Alexandra. Uh, and he knows that the Italian fleet's out escorting its own convoy to Tripoli. What's, hope, what's, what's, what's Cunningham hoping to do, Gary? Well, he's hoping to draw the Italians into battle by sailing towards Italy, so, in effect, cut them off from their home base at uh, Taranto. So he's trying to get between them and, and Taranto. Uh, what happens? Well, the two fleets eventually meet at the Battle of Calabria on the 9th of July, 1940. Uh, the Allied cruisers 
were outgunned in the early encounters, encounters so Cunningham takes the war spike forward to assist. Whoa! Uh, so the Italian cruisers turn away uh, under a smokescreen, uh, and, uh, but the, the, the battleships, uh, Guillo César and Comte de Cavour, close on the war spike before the Malaya and any other ships can catch up. This, is, this looks like the war spike's in trouble again. Yep. And uh, then there's a near miracle, Pete. Near miracle. A truly stupendous long-range gunnery hit from a moving ship at a moving target hits the Guilo Cesar at a range of approximately 26,000 yards. Now, that's, uh, that's the war spike does this. We want to have 15-inch shells, isn't it? Now, you, you're going to be... <laughs> yeah, I thought you might pick him. You're always the bosses. Um... You're going to be Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham, uh, and you're aboard the war spite. What, what, what does he say? The war spite shooting was consistently good. I had been watching the great splashes of our 15-inch salvos straddling the target when, at 4pm, I saw the great orange-coloured flash of a heavy explosion at the base of the enemy's flagship's funnels. It was followed by an upheaval of smoke, and I knew that she had been heavily hit at the prodigious range of 13 miles. His ships turned away, and having discharged 17 salvos in all, the war spite ceased firing, the whole western horizon being overlaid with a thick pall of smoke behind which the enemy became completely hidden. Pal or pall of smoke? Pall, I think we'll go for. Well, I think Scotsmen say pal. Get you, pal. Now, <laughs> now that's... Uh... That's quite a sensible uh, account. But uh, other people talk about Cunningham leaning over the side of the bridge, <laughs> pointing out various Italian ships. And what, what's he say? There's another bastard. Shoot that bastard up. That's more like it. <laughs> anyway, uh, what did they hit? Well, they hit the rear fun- funnel of their Guilo Cesare with fragments starting several fires, forced the boilers offline, and it took the, uh, the, 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 the Italian flagship speed down to 18 knots. Uh, now, obviously, C- Cunningham doesn't know. Uh, they're not sure how bad the damage is, and they can see the Malaya and the Royal Sovereign coming into range. So the Italian fleet withdraw. They disengage and withdraw. Uh, they disengage behind the, the smoke screen. That's that's what uh, Cunningham was talking about, the, the pole of smoke, <laughs> or pal of smoke, uh, if you're Scottish. Yeah. Um, uh, now, uh, so that we, we could... Uh, now, look... I, th- I want to make this clear. If you read the various histories of the war spot, there's loads more action, but we can only cover the head highlights. What's the next highlight, Gary? Well, the next uh, it's a biggie, isn't it? is biggie. It's a big it's one. A big, biggie, it's biggie, the biggie. Battle of Cape Matapan. Yeah. Now, the Mediterranean fleet's covering troop movements to Greece when Bletchley Park decoded the Italian naval enigma for the first time, which gives intelligence of the sailing of an Italian fleet comprising the Vittorio Veneto. That's a cracking new ship, yeah. Six heavy and two light cruisers, plus destroyers to attack the convoys. Now, on 27th of March 1941, Cunningham goes to intercept. The next day, his cruisers run into the Italian fleet. Cunningham orders an airstrike, which uh, caused the Italians to fall back. Uh, and then there's a series of, of airstrikes, uh, which damaged the Vittorio Veneto and the heavy cruiser Polar. Now, the Vittoria Veneto escapes into the dusk, it's, it's nighty time, and the British pursue uh, through the night, and they manage to run down the Polar and her sister ships, uh, that's the Fiumi and Zara. Now, who, who, who runs them down? Well, that, that's the uh, Warspite, Valiant and Barham. Barham, 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 uh, aided by their searchlights. And, 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 and one of those... Uh, 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 this is quite interesting in view of recent events. Uh, who's on board the Valiant that you might have heard of? Well, the Valiant was commanded at that point. By no, the, not commanded. By Sorry. the late Prince Philip. In your notes, Pete, you said that the uh, Valiant was commanded by the late Prince Philip. I knew you'd do that, but if you look, one, one of these searchlights. Ah, I see. One of those on Valiant was commanded by the late Prince Philip. Yeah, we can cut all that out, Pete. We can cut. I mean, mistakes are just something that happens. Yeah, because yeah, I personally don't make mistakes. Out. I think someone pointed out recently that other than dates, dates, people, pronunciations, place names, historical facts, and anything else, I'll get most things right. And that is why, in many ways, I consider you a mentor. <laughs> in many ways, I don't. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, right. I'm going to be Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham again. He's on board HMS Warspite, and he says, I shall never forget the next few minutes. In the dead silence, a silence that could almost be felt, one heard only the voices of the gun control personnel putting the guns onto the new target. One heard the orders repeated in the director tower behind and above the bridge. Looking forward, one saw the turrets swing and steady when the 15-inch guns pointed at the enemy cruisers. Never in the whole of my life have I experienced a more thrilling moment than when I heard a calm voice from the director tower Director Lair sees the target. Sure sign that the guns were ready and that his finger was itching on the trigger. The enemy was at a range of no more than 3,800 yards, point blank. And that's when the moment comes. It's an amazing moment for these people. I mean, it's death and destruction, but it is an incredibly exciting moment. Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham goes on to say, One heard the ting, ting, ting of the firing gongs. Then came the great orange flash and the violent shutter as the six big guns bearing were fired simultaneously. At the very same instant, the destroyer Greyhound switched her searchlights onto one of the enemy cruisers, showing her momentarily up as a silvery blue shape in the darkness. Our searchlights shone out with the first salvo and provided full illumination for what was a ghastly sight. Full in the beam, I saw our six great projectiles flying through the air. Five of the six hit a few feet below the level of the cruiser's upper deck and burst with splashes of brilliant flame. The Italians were quite unprepared. Their guns were trained fore and aft. They were helplessly shattered before they could put up any resistance. Oh, it's quite a story, isn't it? Uh, so, uh, so he's a bit overexcited, isn't he? He is. But imagine the feelings of uh, of a young seaman. Now, I've I've carefully selected you to be boy seaman Roy Emmington of HMS Warspite. Can you think why that might be, Pete? No, <laughs> I think I think of the end of this quote. Watch out for it. Here we go. I was in the ex troops control cabinet. That was a night to remember because at night actions, the 15 inch turrets fired broadsides. Some of us shook the insides out of you, so you were wondering what, what the broadsides would do. We didn't have long to wonder. We got the orders to load both guns, and we heard the breech workers shout, Ready! And a few seconds after they fired, the feeling in a 15 inch turret. Firing broadsides will be hard to explain, yeah, especially the feelings of a 17-year-old boy. It took us hours on the mess deck to unwind that night. Yes. What could he mean? <laughs> well, he was very young. He clearly hadn't gone through puberty based on your, uh, your accent now. Probably any East Finchley Boy Scout, mate. Mm. Right, so what happens to that? In a one way, this isn't funny because this is one thing you have to remember in warfare. This is all very well from our perspective if you're British. But what about the Italians on, on, on the, those ships? Because, you know, we're all friends well, together now. What happened to the lads on those three heavy cruisers? The, uh, well, all three heavy cruisers are destroyed. The Fuame and Zara within a mere two to three minutes. You've Blimey. said this before. When things go wrong at sea, Pete, they can go wrong very quickly. The Polar was already dead in the water and sinking, and it was finished off later. And two Italian destroyers were also sunk, all with the loss of some 2,400 Italian sailors. And that isn't funny. Funny accents put aside for that. That's, uh, that's uh, terrible. Now, an air recce shows that the rest of the Italian fleet had escaped. So the fleet goes back to Alexandria on the 29th of March, uh, surviving air attacks. Now, this is, uh, this is a theme that well, we're just going to pick out a quote because air attacks are very common in the uh, the Mediterranean. And and this is uh well he's in charge of air defence, he's in charge of the anti aircraft guns on the uh, on the on the war spy. And he's Lieutenant Commander William Fitzroy and you're gonna read his quote. Bombs, bombs, bombs. Yet surprisingly few ships were hit. I can only reach back to the sounding of alarm bells, to the whine of the force draft fans as the ship rapidly increased speed, and to the wide swathes of bombs as they crossed and recrossed the fleet. Action stations, defence stations, and much more rarely cruising stations, the lowest degree of readiness. 
one after the other, day in, day out, on one occasion, in an interval between air attacks, a tired bridge messenger accidentally tripped up and shot a jug of scalding cocoa down the back of my neck. My roar of pain coincided with the air raid red alarm bells. Captain Fisher turned round and said to me, We seem to be rather noisy in our closing up today. I wonder if he was a tired messenger or someone who didn't like him. <laughs> oh, sorry, sir. It was an accident. Yes. I apologise unreservedly. Now, on the 22nd of May 1941, during the German invasion of Crete, the war spite lucky, suffers... Lucky war Lucky war spite suffers severe damage in an air raid. Now, Jack Worth had a good view from his anti-aircraft pom-pom, and you're going to be Jack. What does Seaman Jack Worth of HMS Warspite say, Pete? This blob came uh, away from under, uh, beneath the German plane and hurtled my way. It was a bomb and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. It took out the four-inch gun beneath me. I looked down. What had been there before was now gone, replaced by a gigantic hole and a mess of wreckage. Now, now what had it done? Well, the bomb damaged her starboard uh, anti-aircraft four-inch and her six-inch secondary batteries, ripping open the ship's side and causing nearly a 100 casualties. Now, now, Pete, you're going to be Marine Arthur Jones, also of HMS Warspite. All the air was blown out of my lungs. I started running and my feet were on fire. I, I think I wasn't killed because I wasn't where I should have been in the gun layer's position. My mate, the gun trainer, was in his position and we never, in, in this position, and we never found his body. It might have been washed overboard. Who knows? They were all my mates. There were nine of us on my gun crew. One survived, me. And uh, the executive officer rushes to the office, to, to, into, into action. He, he, you know, this is his job. This is, this is where he, he becomes the, the key figure, assessing the damage, sorting out. And on this occasion, it's Commander Sir Charles Madden, well-known name. Uh, and he, of course, he's on HMS Warspite. And you're going to read it. I saw dense smoke coming from the starboard four-inch battery. On reaching the upper deck level, it was apparent that one four-inch mountain had gone overboard completely and that the other was at an angle. There was a huge hole in the deck between the two mountains from which smoke and flame were pouring out. I then went down to the port six-inch battery to see if fire parties were ready and to try to get at the seat of the fire through the armoured door that connected the port and starboard six-inch battery decks. I found the fire party lined up ready by this door. Asked two ratings to enter with me and told the fire parties to open the door and follow us in. We had great difficulty in opening this door and had to use a sledgehammer. Finally it gave to display a gruesome scene. The starboard battery was full of flames and smoke, in amongst which the cries of burned and wounded men could be heard. The flames seemed pretty fierce and I was doubtful if we would make headway against them. However, my two volunteers came either side of me with their hoses and we walked into the battery. Now, this is just like, remember our HM, uh, when we did the Jutland podcast, HMS Malaya's hitting a starboard battery and, and, they, and, they, go to, to, and they, they go through trying to, trying to rescue. Um, they manage to damp down the flames, don't they? And, and Madden says this. I felt confident that I could get the fires out, but was hampered by the continued cries of the burned men which distracted the fire parties who wanted to leave their hoses to assist their comrades. I therefore concentrated on administering morphia. As it was dark and wounded men were thrown in all directions amidst piles of ironwork and rubbish, this was not easy. Now, there was a, through that, you know where the four-inch gun was? They, they, they could see. They're not out of the woods. There's still aircraft up above them. And Madden says this. We could see the deep blue sky and the next wave of attacking aircraft coming at us. The four-inch battery being out of action made it seem unpleasantly quiet until the pom-pom started up, which caused a lot of broken ironwork to fall about. I can remember the pom-pom bursts filling up the area of sky. We could see and the aircraft still coming on and some of the fire parties dropping their hoses to shake their fists at them. Then, then that's not it. He has to rush off to another part of the ship. There's another emergency that, as executive officer, Madden has to deal with it. I then went to the starboard mess decks where a fresh and unexpected scene of carnage greeted me. The armoured deck overhead, that of the starboard six-inch battery, had been pierced by the explosion, the force of which had descended into a mess deck where communication ratings off watch were resting. 
These, contrary to instructions, and because of the heat, were lightly clad, and there were heavy casualties from burns. The great amount of water we had pumped into the battery above to put out the fires had poured into the mess deck, which was in parts knee-deep in water, thus adding to the confusion of scattered mess tables, lockers and bodies. Now, now I'm sorry, this... I had to pause a couple of times there because I just I got slightly confused because I, I had a bit of a feeling of deja vu and, and I was getting confused about who I was talking about. In the First War, there's a very similar account by Commander Humphrey Warwin on the war spy. When she'd been turning round and all the damage she suffered and he goes around all the various sites of, of the damage. And it's a very similar account, isn't it? Yeah. And and you had to you read Walwyn. I remember you did it in the Jutland podcast. Yeah, so sorry for that. And it, again it, and again in the of course when we did the war spite for uh, for the first war. It, but it just kept coming into my head. It was almost as if I was reading the same thing. Very similar instance in, in many ways. I think there's more casualties in this than there were at uh, Jutland. A lot more. It was a terrible incident. Now, she's going to need repairs after this. Uh, so, in June 1941, she sets off uh, to the Bremerton Naval Shipyard in the United States, uh, which is new, new. Is it neutral? Yes, it's neutral. Uh, don't come in the water, December. Um, but they're, they're helping out, so to speak. Uh, so, what, what happens there? What are they doing? Well, repairs and modifications begin in August. Uh, which includes the replacement of uh, deteriorated 15-inch guns. That's from firing so much. Yeah. Now, the addition of more anti-aircraft weapons. Ever more anti-aircraft guns. Improvements to the bridge and new surface and anti-aircraft radar. The mod- mod- Well, these are things that have come in during the war, so yeah. Um, after sea trials, she joins the Eastern Fleet at Tr- Trincomalee. Where's that? Uh, I have no idea Sri Lanka, where Trincomalee Ceylon, is. Ceylon or Sri Lanka, which, whichever you want to use. Uh, March 42... And there she's the flagship of Admiral Sir James Somerville. Now, funny enough, we've not got much to say about this, have we? No, because although it's a, a developing, threatening situation, this deployment's relatively calm. And after another quick refit at Durban, she returns to the UK in May 1943. Now, she joins a famous force then, Force H, based at Scapa Flow, and then sails on 9th of June 1943 for the Mediterranean with five other battleships, two aircraft carriers and 12 destroyers. It's a, a big fleet for the Second World War. Uh, what's she covering? What, 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 what could be happening in June? Well, she, she's helping to cover the Operation Husky Invasion of Sicily, which is in July 1943. We did a podcast on that. We did. Her main involvement was going to be the bombardment of uh, Catania. Now, <laughs> you're, you've got a quote here. I have. Uh, it, this is Captain Herbert Packer of HMS Warspite. What does Herbert say, Pete? A great mass of dust and smoke rose from the town right on target. We had exactly 20 minutes to do our dirty work. Then everything happened at once. Two submarines appeared and were quickly death-charged by our destroyers. Three FW-190s, a Fockwolf 190s, got a load of Ehrlich and pom-pom, four-inch and six-inch, but got away. They were moving about 400 mile per hour and machine-gunning like fury, but with indifferent accuracy. The shore batteries opened up and the destroyers took them on as our big guns were pouring in the stuff. That's pouring in the firing at Catania. It would say it was a fine 20 minutes for the old war spite. Hmm, right. She then goes back to uh, Malta at high speed. And on the way, there's several air attacks, which her combination of her high speed and anti-aircraft defences means that she's lucky. Lucky war spite, we call her. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she got a bit of a nickname from Admiral Cunningham here when he, he signals something. What, what does he do? He signals, operation well carried out. There is no question when the old lady lifts her skirts, she can run. <laughs> Now, in early September, the war spite helped cover the assault across the Straits of Messina and Salerno landings. And on the 9th of 8th of September, she has another close shave. That'd be off Salerno. And, and I'm going to be Captain Herbert Packer, who's, the commanding, who's commanding the war spite. He says this. I heard above the sound of our pom-poms, ehrlichans, four-inch and six-inch guns, an aircraft roaring in. It skimmed down the safe edge of our barrage, about 40 degrees off the port bow. I saw this jet... JU-88 drop his torpedo. I saw it splash, and down the voice pipe to the quartermaster, I roared, Port! 
35 degrees. It's well, 35, whatever. It seemed a thousand years before I saw the electric repeat from the rudder head showing that the rudder was 35 degrees to port. I can honestly say that I was holding on to things, waiting for the bump, and so was everyone else on the bridge. The bump, he means the thump of the uh, torpedo. I steadied up with my course. Parallel to the track of the torpedo, and it literally missed the stern by feet. The parallel track was so close that I had to climb up on the side of the bridge and look over the edge to see it. Wow, wow! Um, so that's a that's lucky. That's lucky. So we, should we say she had mixed luck? Yeah. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of notable thing. Uh, the Italians surrender about this time, uh, early September. And the war spot has the honour of meeting and leading in elements of the Italian fleet, including the flagship Vittoria Veneta, the Italia, the Guilo Cesare, for internment in Malta. And this is all echoes, isn't it? Echoes of November 1918. And Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham, uh, who's in command of the Mediterranean fleet, says, not on the war spot, but he's in, he's, he, he watches it. What does he say? It was a most moving and thrilling sight to see my wildest hopes of years back brought to fruition, and my former flagship, the War Spite, which had struck the first blow against the Italians three years before, leading her erstwhile opponents into captivity, filled me with the deepest emotion and lives with me still. I can never forget it. I made a signal congratulating the War Spite on her proud and rightful position at the head of the line. And as I say, it's just like in 1918 when, when the German fleet surrendered. Now, Force H was recalled to the UK to begin preparations for D-Day. So the war spite's in the thick of everything, isn't it? And the war spite and the Valiant uh, are there to, to provide uh, support for the uh, Allied forces. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm going completely wrong. The the the, the war spite, the valiant, are left behind. Sorry, I did get, I got confused there. And they're going to su- provide more support for the, uh, the the landings at Salerno. And uh, I'm going to be Captain Herbert Packer, aren't I? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Well, let's hope I get it right, more right than that. Eh? Faultless, faultless. That's me. Fire was opened on enemy traffic concentrations and ammunition. It must have been heartening to the hard-pressed soldiers to see the great ship steaming up and down only half a mile offshore, their guns belching flame, to hear that 15-inch shells screaming overhead and then see the heavy explosions in in the uh, enemy lines. Do you think the British infantry were grateful? Well, yes, I would have thought so. Bloody row. Oh, I can't hear myself think. (laughs) Anyway, um... Some 35 of 65 15-inch shells fired at long range are reported to have hit the targets, and eight more were within 100 yards. And 100 yards, I wouldn't like to be 15 yeah, 100 yards for a 15-inch shell. However, on 15th of September, the wall spike finally ran out of look. Look, look, look. At least you can say Paul. <laughs> when she attacked, she was attacked by the Luftwaffe, uh, including three Dornier. Um, uh, 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 Dornier's 217 bombers and what are they armed with? What's well they're, going they're armed with very early uh, guided bombs Pete Oh dear Now once more you're going to be Captain Herbert Packer I am At 2.30pm the ship's lookout sighted what were first thought to be three high level bombers at about 6,000 feet They were actually wireless controlled bombs whose controlling aircraft were far away overhead at 20,000 feet. The three bombs turned vertically down and dived for the ship at great speed. From the time of the sighting to the time of the bomb's arrival was only some 7 to 10 seconds. Mm. Well, one 3,000 pound bomb was a direct hit. Two just missed. One of them caused some damage to the side. But one of them hit just the stern of the aircraft hangar, penetrating through to the bomber, the boiler bomber, the boiler rooms. And uh, you're going to be Chief Petty Officer J.W. Stuter of the war spot. It seemed as if an express train travelling at high speed had hit the ship. One tremendous explosion which seemed to jar every nerve in one's body. The ship seemed as if it had been picked up by some devilish hands, then dropped. Dust was everywhere, and most of the crew rushed to the upper deck. A second explosion occurred, followed by more intense shuddering, which must have been the bombs exploding in the region of the boiler rooms. Now, so that, 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 so on the bridge, 
it's staggering, isn't it? It's just the impact staggering. And I'm going to be Captain Herbert Packer. I was not thrown off my feet, but for a fraction of a second, had a kind of blackout, like when you take a hard toss at football or off a horse. But I could see and think perfectly clearly all the time. Black smoke and dirt from the funnel and a hell of a noise. Through the whole, thought the whole mast was coming down as it rocked, bent and whipped. For a moment I thought we were probably sunk and was quite prepared for the ship to break in two. No one lost their heads or shouted or anything on the bridge. They were all first class and the anti-aircraft guns which had opened fire kept firing. That was good. Now where was she hit? Well, she's badly hit uh, near the funnel, the bomb cutting through her decks and making a 20-foot hole in the bottom of her hull. Now, this cripples her, uh, and although there were only 23 casualties, now, the war spike once more begins circling. Now, we we haven't made a big thing with it. The war spike steering's been dodgy, but once again, she's going around in circles. We've heard that before at Jutland, haven't we? And I'm Captain Herbert Packer. A fire was reported in the hangar. Put it out, I said. Then to guns. If we can steam and shoot, we'll carry out our final bombardment. I kept going at six knots. Then the ship would not steer. We were in the swe- we were in the swept channel, and we steered in a circle. I stopped the engine. We were heading straight for the mines. A minesweeper sent us violent signals to get out of it. I couldn't, for the helm was hard over, and finally the starboard engine room died out too. So there we were, once again, going round in circles and quite helpless. Now, she doesn't hit the mines, no. uh, and with some 5,000 gallons of seawater inside her, she was towed off in near-sinking condition. Oh, dear. Yeah, very difficult journey. How she doesn't sink, I don't know. She got back to the UK in March 1944 and was sent to Rosyth, opposite Edinburgh, for, for repairs. Uh, what, what, what happens this time? Well, six-inch guns are removed, the gaps in the sides plated in, and a concrete caisson covered the hole left by the German bomb. They're basically concrete up the bottom. Yeah, now one of the boiler rooms in the X turret could not be repaired and uh, indeed was out of action for the remainder of her career. So she's a, a bit of a cripple now, I'm afraid. Crippled ship. Um, she left Greenock on the 2nd of June, 44. Well, I wonder why, they, why, 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 why are they trying to get her into action? Well, that's a quick turnaround, isn't it? it so is. she leaves it with uh, six 15-inch guns, eight 4-inch anti-aircraft guns uh, and... 40 pom-poms and she joins Bombardment Force D of the Eastern Task Force of the Normandy Invasion Fleet off Plymouth on the 4th of June. Ready to go into action. Uh, Thus it is on D-Day, 6th of June at 5 o'clock in the morning, war spite. Well, she has a a particular honour. What's that? Well, she's often given the honours and on this occasion she has the honour to be the first ship to open fire, bombarding the German battery at uh, Villaville from a position 26,000 yards offshore in support of the landing by the 3rd Division on Salt Beach. We've been there. Yeah. We have. Now, uh, you're going to be Seaman Dennis Spencer, who's on the war spot. Our target was an important gun battery above Treville. We had some anxious moments as the battery straddled us with a salvo, but our first one was the only one necessary as far as they were concerned. The rest of the day was spent shelling batteries, troops and a convoy of motor transport on a road. We silenced all our targets except one gun, which the RAF finished off for us. We fell out for supper, but closed up again throughout the night. We had our meals such as they were in the turret. Now, she carries these bombardment duties, carries on firing on the 7th of June. She fires some 300 shells, that's a lot, in two days. Then nips back to get some more shells, comes back, and then moves over on the 9th of July to support the Americans. 9th of uh, June, Pete. 9th of June. Sorry, I do apologize. It was a bad time to take my glasses off, wasn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> 9th of June. <laughs> Stupid me. Uh, there's the wrong date, Gary. Uh, to support the uh, oh uh, the Americans at Utah, Utah Beach. Um, uh um, then, uh, 11th of June, she supports 69th Brigade at Gold Beach. We've been there as well. Uh, 12th of June, she goes back to Portsmouth to get more ammunition. But uh, her guns are worn out, aren't they? Worn out. Uh, so what happens next? Well, she's ordered to sail to Rosyth via the Straits of Dover. Hang um, on a minute. that's Not many ships have been going through the English Channel, have they? No, she's the first British battleship to have done that since the war began. 
That's what, your... what can go wrong to Lucky Wallspot? I'm sure you're going to say she no trouble at all. No, she she manages to evade the German coastal ah, batteries. Ah, I see. I told you she was lucky. Well, this is partly due to effective radar jamming. <sighs> so through without any damage at all. That's lucky. Yeah, she hits a mine 28 miles off Harwich early on the 13th of June. I can just imagine him. Oh dear, so you're going to be Seaman Dennis Spencer again. We were congratulating ourselves on having got through all right when there was an explosion aft on portside. I'd just come out of a turret and felt the whole ship whip under the strain and the old lady took a sharp list to port. I went back into the turret and then emergency stations was piped so I went aft to the flight deck where the rest of the crowd were gathered, fully expecting to have to walk over the side into a carly float. After a while, we were told that the ship was steady and that we were underway, although a little low in the water. Back into the dockyard then. <laughs> now, the, a propeller shafts are damaged as well. Uh, got to take, replace the guns, and that takes till early August. Uh, a top speed now, uh, have a guess what that is, 24 knots, 23 No, knots? it's down to uh, only 15 knots, and uh, her only feasible role now is shore bombardment. She's basically a floating battery, uh, uh, like a monitor, but, you know. She arrives at Ushant on the 25th of 1944 and attacks the coastal batteries there at Le Conquet and pont saint Mathieu. That was on the 25th of August, 1944. Yeah, what did I say this time? 25th of August. <laughs> I'm losing the will to live. <laughs> now, this is during the battle for uh, Brest, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, then with the monitor Erebus, that's the First World War, uh, the monitor, yep. uh, interesting ship. She carries out a preparatory bombardment around Le Havre, because uh, there's a German garrison there holding out. What's a final task, a final military task? Well, it's to support an Anglo-Canadian operation to open up the port of Antwerp, which uh, that had been captured in early September, I believe, by clearing the Scheldt estuary. Now, so that's, uh, the, that's at the the other, so they can get through because the Germans are on the other side of the estuary. Uh, yeah, we did something about I'm that. I'm just, like, just about to say that rings a bell again with the the, the islands there. I think south, not to south. They yeah. fired across, and remember the old forward observation officers went and, across. And Valtteri Island, I think oh, it was. Valtteri Island, that's it. Uh, so her final, she bombards on Walcher and Ireland on the 1st of November, 44, and goes back to Deal the next day. And that was the last time she fired her guns. Her war is effectively over. Um, always sad in a way. Uh, her crew loved her. Um, <laughs> they must be a bit tired of being blown up, running into things. We missed out all the, we missed out most of the collisions she had. Basically, every two or three weeks, she seems to have been in a collision. Dodging war spot. Uh, what happens to her after the war, Gary? Is it a tale of uh, she, you know, made a, sh- a museum ship or something? Can well, we there go were proposals. Can we go to, and visit her? Yeah, there were proposals to retain her as a museum ship, but uh, the Admiralty approved the scrapping of war spy in July 1946, and she sailed from Spithead into Portsmouth to have her guns removed. Oh, so that's the end of the story, then, isn't it? Well, on the 19th of April 1947, Warspite departs Portsmouth. Hang on, hang on. Why are you carrying on? We've finished, haven't we? No, she departs uh, Portsmouth for scrapping at Fast Lane. Now, on the way, she encounters a severe storm. Lucky Warspite. (laughs) And loses her tugs. She dropped anchor in Mounts Bay, but she could not hold, and she ended up hard aground in Prussia Cove. Wow. Yeah, that's the thing. She, it's almost an act of defiance. I mean, ships, let's make this clear, ships do not have a personality. But if you attribute a personality, the war spy is afraid. Yes. <laughs> now, the hull's too badly damaged to uh, allow her to be refloated. And by the summer of 1955... <laughs> <laughs> I was born in... Uh, oh, no, I was, I was born in 1950. Uh, it had broken up for salvage. Now, many of her old crew... They'd have an annual pilgrimage to the site of the wreck with a, a, a sort of commemorative memorial placed on shore in the 1990s. They'd oh. gather to toast their old ship in a pub decorated with wood panelling from the war spite. Now, uh, one sad thing is that uh, very few people who served on the war spite are still alive now. They'd, they'd be in their late 90s, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, I can't sadly, work it they're out. mostly all long gone. Well, that's uh, what a ship she was. It, I mean, as I say, ships don't have personalities, but it's almost as it. As if 
she did. Now we want to make clear that we 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 we're not we use various sources. If you want to read more about the the, the war spy, the first book I would recommend is Oscar Park's British Battleships, mainly because it's the best book on battleships you'll ever get. It's wonderful. You can get one for about forty to fifty quid. Uh, but what about the war spy? Well, the best book is by uh, Stephen Roskill, HMS War Spy: The Story of a Famous Battleship, nineteen fifties book. I love it. But there's a couple. There's three other books we consulted what were they Gary well Ian Ballantyne HMS Warspite The Fighting Life of the Royal Navy's Bravest Battleship ba- Battleships aren't brave um, but there you go so that gives you a bit of a an well idea. I think he's making reference to the crew there yeah. isn't he alright and then uh, another one Harry Plevy Battleship Sailors The Fighting Career of HMS Warspite Recalled by Her Men yeah is that an oral history book Pete no it isn't really and a lot of the quotes are taken from Roscoe um but but it's still useful, still nice, but they're all nice books. And finally, the book that I got nowhere with, because it's technical, Ross Walton, Battleship Wars by Anatomy of the Ship. I just didn't understand it. It's all plans and things. I'll explain it to you later. Yeah. Will, will you draw me a diagram? I'll draw you a diagram. Uh, we will be posting this with a picture of HMS Warspite, uh, which I, I personally drew. Uh, imagine uh, passing through Delville Wood in 1916. And um, I took the Michael of that until I actually saw a picture of the real war spite and you've got it remarkably accurate. It is an accurate drawing. It um, is. Uh, it looks like a four-year-old's drawn it, but it is accurate. Well, I've really enjoyed that. War, I made a model of it when I was about 18 and uh, it, it was a proud moment as I finished off the final bit. Um, well, I'm sure the listeners will agree that uh, that was an error-free podcast. I feel I made no mistakes at Neither all. of us and um, your young uh, boy seaman was interesting. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?